Oliver Gould worked at Twitter from 2010 to 2014. Twitter's popularity was taking off, and the engineering team was learning how to scale the product. During that time, Twitter adopted Apache Mesos and began breaking up its monolithic architecture into different services. As more and more services were deployed, engineers at Twitter decided to standardize communications between those services with a tool called a service proxy. A service proxy provides each service with features that every service would want. Load balancing, routing, service discovery, retries, observability. It turns out that lots of other companies wanted this service proxy technology as well which is why Oliver left Twitter to start Buoyant, a company that was focused on developing software around the service proxy, and eventually the service mesh. If you're unfamiliar with service proxies and service mesh, you can check out our previous shows on Linkerd, Envoy, and Istio. In this episode, we're going to be going a little bit deeper than our previous episodes. Kubernetes is often deployed with a service mesh. A service mesh consists of two parts, the data plane and the control plane. The data plane refers to the sidecar containers that are deployed to each of your Kubernetes application pods. Each sidecar has a service proxy. The control plane refers to a central service that aggregates data from across the data plane and can send communications to the service proxies sitting across that control plane. So it's really bi-directional communication. You've got all these different pods in your Kubernetes cluster. Each pod has a service proxy sidecar container. The sidecar container is communicating with that centralized service mesh. It's communicating what's going on in this pod. And then you've got this centralized service mesh, which can be used to deploy updates to the service proxies. So maybe you have a change in your configuration or your policy management, and the service mesh can be used as the communication point to communicate that out to all of your different pods in the distributed cluster. The first product that came out of Oliver's company, Buoyant, was the Linkerd service mesh, and that was built in Java. The project was started before Kubernetes had become the standard for container orchestration, so Linkerd was useful for connecting a service mesh through Mesos and Kubernetes and Docker Swarm, is very flexible. But once Kubernetes became the standard for container orchestration, Buoyant decided to build a new service mesh, which is called Conduit. And this is a service mesh built using Rust and Go. I think this is a great example of why it's so important that we eventually centralized on some kind of container orchestration system rather than all of the different companies in the space using either Mesos or Kubernetes or Docker Swarm. And yes, there are people who are using those other container orchestration systems, but the centralization towards Kubernetes allowed for, in this case, Buoyant to build a service mesh specifically for Kubernetes. And it's built using Rust and Go, so it's a lot faster and lighter weight than Linkerd. In this episode, we explore how to design a service mesh and what Oliver learned in his experiences building Linkerd and Conduit. Oliver Gould is the co-founder and CTO at Buoyant. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. We've done a few shows with your co-founder, William Morgan, and the first one we did with him was a discussion of Twitter and his experiences there, and you spent a parallel period of time with him at Twitter. To set a stage for a discussion of modern infrastructure, let's reflect on how things were just seven years ago at a place like Twitter. You worked on traffic and observability during your tenure, which was, I guess, 2010 to 2015. And that was a time when traffic was increasing, observability was increasing in importance. Can you describe your experiences? Oh, yeah. That's a great question. So when I joined in 2010, I was coming from Yahoo. And Yahoo is this very large, millions of machines all over the world, but a very kind of messy internal architecture. Uh, and I was really focused on config management at Yahoo. So coming into Twitter, I expected to be like, okay, we'll be working on Puppet. And we, we certainly had a lot of Puppet and all of that. But 
quickly I was kind of thrown into what I now know to be a microservices migration. We didn't have those words for it then. I think we called it you know, system-oriented architecture or one of those bad words. But I was quickly kind of thrown into the, the re-architecture that Twitter built into, and that was having observability as a service, having you know, compute and memory as a service via the memcache team and the Mesos team, having kind of rich traffic libraries and finagle, having a kernel team, and really having a distributed operating system for Twitter engineering to build into on the platform teams that Twitter built into. And so that was a very lucky time to be there, to be there when it was, I think, 30 engineers in runtime systems when I started, and then 150 two years later. It's just really lucky to be behind the scenes and see what actually goes into making these things work and go to production. So back then, you were on Mesos. Uh, Twitter, I think, is still on Mesos? or Yeah, know? and actually, so when we started working on observability, the team next to me was the Mesos team and the Aurora team. And I totally bet against them. I thought that they were going to fail and that like that nobody would ever give up ownership of their own hosts to like run in some scheduled environment. So we really built observability not expecting the dynamic environment to win. Mm-hmm. And about a year later, uh, we really had to scramble to really meet the mass adoption because Mesos unlocked so much flexibility in engineering. You no longer had to go ask someone for a piece of hardware and pay money. You could just go launch your process into some big hardware pool. That was surprising. It was nice to be wrong sometimes, I guess. Well, I imagine that introduced all kinds of observability implementation differences because you were going from, I guess that was a world where people were just ad hoc spinning up VMs that were not on some centralized addressable platform, it was going from what to Mesos? Oh, yeah. So initially, uh, we had kind of a host database like everyone starts with, just like a machine catalog. And, you know, to build observability, since I was in the ops team, I know who to go ask to get 30 machines for, you know, our our infrastructure. And we'd go manually, you know, SCP or our binaries or Capistrano deployer binaries onto those you know, fixed static hosts. And so kind of no dynamic environment, you know, rented data centers or own data centers and a host where I could go and I knew the name of it and I could go find it in the data center if I wanted to. And that was kind of the early days and everyone would do that. It was very manual and, you know, the way we do service discovery, it was initially by like just copying around host lists between teams. And that clearly wasn't going to scale with the engineering team and the velocity that we need to operate at. Oh, I'm, I think I'm remembering this now. I think William told me there was like a shared Google spreadsheet. Yeah, <laughs> that's basically right. Yeah, if, and if you knew like what whiskey the hardware provisioning team liked, you could get your hardware a little easier than the other people. Yeah, it was very <laughs> manual back then. So was there any hope of standardizing observability tools across those different host instances? Well, and the, the other thing to think about here is that this was kind of before the big microservice decomposition. So there were a few of the kind of platform services that had been extracted out of the monorail, but this is before there were a, a real distributed microservice. So it was really one big application being deployed every day. And so observability was mostly done through Ganglion and Agios and was basically statically configured and it was basically okay. But there are some smart people in engineering who realized that we'd have to have a much more distributed dynamic environment to actually scale the engineering team, that like, mm. we couldn't keep adding people to this one project and have it be at all maintainable. And so that's kind of where the need for an observability platform came from. And, and when we started with the observability platform, it was still kind of, you know, you'd file a ticket to us and we'd start to monitor your static list of hosts that we could go pull from the database or from the spreadsheet. And over time, that became more and more automated to where now in, in their Aurora clusters, as you deploy, you just get visibility for free just by you know, virtue of getting deployed in the cluster. So this move to having an increase in the number of services, I guess that coincided with Mesos. Either Mesos was, you know, people wanted to have Mesos because there were more services and it was becoming a little more of a sprawling architecture or... It was the uh, sprawling architecture was happening because of Mesos. Maybe you could describe a little bit about that. You know, about that time as people were onboarding to Mesos and the the monorail was getting broken up. Yeah. So as you can imagine, you know, Twitter had at the time had a lot of 
tech debt and platform that we were trying to pay off. And at the same time, I think Twitter probably still has this problem. They're focusing on growth. How do they add more users to the product, you know, month over month? And to do that, they had to be able to iterate much more quickly on the product. And so doing that in one big you know, Ruby application really wasn't going to fly. And so there was a time where people were just trying to jam all these features into the main application. And then as that became organizationally difficult and you know, it would slow things down, it kind of became natural to want to create new services as a way to just own your own schedule. So William, for instance, launched the photo service. You know, if you see a picture on Twitter, it's his fault. And that was one of the first decomposed services, and that was kind of done so they could launch quickly without having to be fully integrated into the main application. And it's, so it's kind of that virtuous. And then it got harder and harder to get your own hardware. And so that, there's this kind of tension that pushed people into Mesos as the, the only platform where you could really move quickly. And microservices just become kind of a cultural thing that uh, fell out of that. And Finagle eventually was a project that got started, if I recall correctly, to standardize some communications between these different services. As the services proliferated, uh, people started to be saying, well, you know, we should have some standard model for proxying communications between these different services. Let's build a thing for it. Yeah, it'd be nice if it was that intentional. Um, I mean, in some ways it was. I think management certainly funded it in that way. But it started actually as a a failed attempt to write a reverse proxy. And so they were going to write the Twitter front end initially. I think this is mid-2010 or so. And as they started to go through this, they realized they actually had to like develop all of these kind of core pieces to write it. And so they were building over Netty, and they were writing in Scala, and they just realized they needed all these new abstractions to really make that ergonomic and correct. And that project was can fail. The engineers working on it realized that they just solved a bunch of problems that every other engineer at the company was solving every day. So I was working on a few other projects at the time on the observability stack, and I was solving service discovery and load balancing and retries and timeouts and all that stuff. And you know, another engineer on my same team was in a slightly different stack and had to solve all those same problems differently. And so that's kind of when the lights clicked and we're like, oh, you know, why don't we just all pile on this one library and try to make it work for ourselves? And eventually that got funded into its own team, uh, the Finagle team and the, or the, court, the CSL team at Twitter now. And, and yeah, it's been nice that it's been funded as kind of a, a whole layer of Twitter's infrastructure is this core library. Oh, so this is like a platform, a platform engineering team got started at Twitter. It is. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah, it's always been very closely related to the platform engineering team. I want to make our way towards Buoyant and Linkerd and then to Conduit pretty quickly because we've done a bunch of other shows about service meshes and, and uh, you know, we've done shows on the history of Twitter. We should get into the, the present and the future. Uh, maybe you could just bring us through what happened when you and William left Twitter and you started Buoyant, which is a company that is building these service meshes. You started off at Buoyant building Linkerd, which is one service proxy. It kind of evolved into a service mesh technology. And then, I guess, bring us up to speed. Get us to the point where you had Linkerd and you were thinking about what to do next. Yeah. So when we started Buoyant, we kind of knew that Finagle and all this kind of platform value at, at Twitter uh, needed to make it to the outside world if Kubernetes and Docker and all these things are actually going to be successful in organizations. Because there's just so many of these pieces you have to actually build up to have a sane platform. And we didn't think everyone wanted to work in, in the libraries that we had worked in. And so putting it into a proxy was our attempt to encapsulate the operational value that we thought we did really well at Twitter uh, without having to take on any of that programmer overhead of you know deciding on a programming model or, or anything like that, uh, which is a, we don't want to have a, a holy war of what the correct thing is. We just want to make it work better today. And so that's where the idea for the proxy started. As we saw the proxy actually get deployed places, the need for a control plane became more and more apparent. And so we have NamerD, which is our kind of first attempt to do that. And then as we started to think about what went well with Linkerd, and that was certainly kind of establishing this functionality of a service discovery aware, super ops rich proxy, 
with this idea of a control plane being part of it. And we realized that if we were to start over again, we would have started with a control plane. That shouldn't be an afterthought. In some ways, the proxy is an implementation detail of the control features. And the other kind of big lesson from Linkerd is that the, the cost of the JVM obviously is fine in many organizations, but especially when we're talking about people in low resource environments running Kubernetes example clusters or, or startups, or especially in the pod sidecar model where you have maybe hundreds of sidecars on a host, uh, the JVM is just not a suitable runtime environment for that. And that was kind of, we knew that going into it. We just didn't know that the the architecture would push us into this kind of pod sidecar environment. And we had always been looking at Rust as kind of the ideal solution of what we'd like to build in. But when we started Buoyant, uh, we looked at the ecosystem and there was barely async networking implemented. And it looked like we'd have to just invent the world to even get started. And like I said, our, our goal at Buoyant is to provide value for teams who have problems today and not at some distant point in the future when we get a perfect architecture. Well, the, the other thing is that you started Buoyant when we were in the midst of these container orchestration debates. I don't want to use the term war, but you know, you couldn't just say, okay, I'm just going to build a service proxy system or service mesh, whatever term you want to use, for Kubernetes. You had to say, well, am I going to support Swarm? Am I going to support Mesos? You did say that. I mean, you wanted to support Mesos and Swarm and Nomad and Kubernetes and all these different things. What was the penalty of the debates around the container orchestration? Was there a lot of work that uh, is, is uh, looking like it decreased in value because everybody's moved to Kubernetes now? In some ways, but I don't really, I th we got a lot of lessons out of those interactions. And, and so Linkerd yeah. itself is you know, made to be very generic as an integration tool. And so you can use it to glue lots of things together. So you can you know, glue Zookeeper and console and Kubernetes service discovery together, uh, for instance. And so it, it was always intended to be, and it was designed in this way to be very flexible and modular. And so, and honestly, a lot of that design came out of the finagle implementation. And so we weren't adding a lot of abstraction overhead to do this. It was more, we knew the plugin APIs we had to build and just layering them in. But I think it made it much harder to focus on control layer features because there are very different primitives and you know, features provided by each of these orchestration environments. And so when we started to think about Kubernetes as a target for, for conduit, we realized that there's a lot you get just out of the Kubernetes API in terms of RBAC and auditing and, and storage APIs, uh, service discovery. There's so many primitives in there that it just seems to, if we're going to focus on the control plane first and not on this glue level proxy that works in many environments, I think Kubernetes is a really sane bet there in terms of the features and adoption you get there. And if you were building a system where you could have a service proxy that communicates with something like Zookeeper, correct me if I'm wrong, but Kubernetes essentially gives you Zookeeper features out of the box. So that's like not like if you were building a service proxy for Kubernetes, you wouldn't really need to. Well, I guess you could need to communicate with uh, with Zookeeper. Like if you're running uh, like a Hadoop cluster that just has to have Zookeeper within it. Or, I mean, tell me more about that. Like once the world has standardized on Kubernetes, which they now have, what kind of precepts can you change? Yeah, I mean, you'd be surprised. We we talk with a lot of work with a lot of organizations who. Kubernetes is not an entirely greenfield project, right? They have to integrate this in their existing environments. And so maybe their engineering organizations made decisions months or years ago that Curator is going to be a standard in their organization. And every application is going to integrate with Zookeeper via Curator. Well, the move to Kubernetes, may they may have to find a way to keep that integration going because it's not an all or nothing move to Kubernetes. It's an incremental move. So we have production users of Linkerd who are using that to glue together their pre-existing curator infrastructure with their forward-looking Kubernetes infrastructure. And so, yeah, Linkerd is a very pragmatic tool. You know, you don't necessarily get to only start with a Kubernetes cluster. You might have to to live the old life for a little while till. Okay, you know, we're getting pretty uh, wonkish here. I guess. I, Sorry. No, yeah. no, no. It's my fault. It's my fault. I should have set the table correctly. The service mesh model. Whether we're talking about Linkerd or Conduit or Istio, you've got a data plane and a control plane. And the data plane is where actual application request traffic between different instances is carried. If we're talking just about Kubernetes, you've got 
your application pods, and then a pod has a sidecar that is a container within it that is doing the service proxying, the service communications. So every request between different application pods goes through the service proxying container. So you've got this container that's the sidecar container that is communicating with any other application sidecar container so that every single communication between a pod and another pod is shuttled through this common component. And it gives you a lot of nice features because if you can make an assumption that every single communication between different services is going to be seen by this type of container, then you can have some standardizations around the way that these different pods are communicating with each other. And this communication gets aggregated into the control plane. So you have the data plane that is like how all these different instances are communicating with each other. And you've got the control plane that's aggregating information from the data plane. And then you can do lots of interesting things in this control plane because you you can change things that are going on in the data plane because you've just got this centralized point of communication between all of your different pods. So explain a little bit more about that relationship between the control plane and the data plane. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so, as you said, what we put in the control plane, so where we started with Linkerd was very data plane heavy, and we added all of the features effectively into the data plane. So service discovery and you know everything was configured directly into the proxy. And only later did we extract that into a different service uh, into the control plane. And with Conduit, what we're doing is really starting with the control plane being the very kind of forward part of the product. And so that's written in Go. It's implemented with... Uh, as a bunch of gRPC services. And so the idea there is that we'll be able to add uh, a plugin interface. So if you want to write, for instance, a telemetry interpreter or something that receives the you know, latency information and success rate information and all of those things, you'll be able to write just a small gRPC service and drop it into the namespace uh, that Conduit runs in. And your process will now start being, uh, being dispatched uh, telemetry information. And so that's where people will build into, and that's where your organization will build automation into is a way to both control the proxy's behavior and configure how the proxies behave, as well as to receive runtime information from the proxies about what traffic is running in your system and how the proxies themselves are are behaving in relation to each other. So what kinds of commands would I want to issue? So if I'm an operator and I'm looking at the control plane and I can do all kinds of stuff from this control plane, I can issue commands out to all of these different sidecars that are sitting on all of my pods across Kubernetes, what kinds of commands might I want to issue? So with Conduit, we've really started on kind of the observability first features. As we get into kind of more policy-facing features, which I'll talk about in a second, uh, that can be quite a bit more complex and security-sensitive. But what we really try to focus on with Conduit is, one, uh, not requiring uh, total adoption, that you should be able to add these sidecars to you know, just certain pods or certain services, and they don't have to be added to all services for you to get information out of them. So if I only want to debug one service, I can just add pods to that, uh, sidecars to that service. What I can do with the control plane is with Conduit, we can actually tap into requests. And so you could think about this like kind of like TCP dump, but for your inter-service requests. And so it works at the request level, and I can say, well, ask the control plane to tap requests that uh, match this path or have these headers or something like that. And then we can actually select out those requests and send them back to the user as they're delivered. And so if the alternative would be to log every single request and then grep them out of some logging system, this allows us to kind of subscribe to events in the system that we really care about for diagnostic purposes primarily today. Later, we'll add more policy-facing features. So for instance, this service can't talk to this service or can talk to this service. Or I want to allow the SLA between these services to be you know, two nines, whereas the SLA between these two other services is three nines. And so really kind of being able to set the policy on the communication between applications rather than on their scheduling parameters or things like that. So today, the use of Conduit, this new service mesh that you've built, is more about I'm looking at my control plane and... I can see the latency between my different services. I can see 
the number of retries. I can see the number of instances that are being spun up in different contexts. Maybe I can do some stuff around distributed tracing. I guess talk more specifically about what observability features you want from a control plane and how does it fit into the overall... Because like observability is like a big term. It, like, Are we talking about logging? Are we talking about monitoring or metrics? What exactly are we talking about when we say observability from the control plane? Yeah, I think in, in some ways we're talking about all the above. We're talking about recording information about the traffic, specifically, not about process memories and things like that, but about traffic and making it processable in some way, invisible by the user. So things we, of course, track are counts of things. So the number of requests, the number of successes, the number of failures. We also talk about latency distributions and size distributions. So how long did it take to get the response to this request? And the way that Conduit tracks this is in a very kind of detailed way. And so it's, we actually can get this down to the method and the HTTP method and the path, and even down to specific headers if the user cares to configure that in the future. And so we can request that fail to the post endpoint have this latency distribution, whereas requests that succeed to the put endpoint have this latency distribution. And so it really lets you kind of slice and dice the behavior of your application without having very specific code instrumented. As we start to talk about distributed tracing and things like that, that will, of course, fall under the proxy over time. But the focus for Conduit right now is to be absolutely zero configuration, zero code change. If we're going to support tracing, that requires some sort of application buy-in to forward headers or some other sorts of information from request to request. And so we haven't tried to start there. We want Conduit right now to be, you don't have to configure anything. You just install it and you get visibility for free. And we'll be adding TLS and things like that in the near future as well, just so you get these features for free without having to like learn a bunch of new things about the service mesh to take advantage of it. And am I doing anything today at the control plane to do load balancing, for example? Because like, I think in an ideal world, you might look at, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but you might be looking at your control plane, or you might configure something in your control plane where if there is a significant latency between these different communication points, maybe I want to add more networking bandwidth somehow or add another service instance of something. I might want to increase the you know some other configuration thing in response to you know where I'm bottlenecking, like where the latency is occurring. So how am I programmatically, doing something that is actionable at that control plane? Uh, Yeah, that's a great question. So there's kind of two main strategies for this. One is in the proxy, much like in Linkerd, we'll be doing latency where load balancing and circuit breaking and all of those kind of baseline operational things. And so the way that works in Linkerd is that we actually measure the response latencies for every single request to each endpoint. And we use that information to inform how to distribute future requests. So we basically have a load profile for the entire cluster at each proxy. As I was saying before, the control plane has this pluggable telemetry system or that will become more pluggable over time at least. And that's where we'll be able to integrate these kind of hooks. So you can detect these events in the system and say, oh, well, my latency is increasing and then react to those. And even today in Conduit, we install Prometheus with that. And so you can use Prometheus's alert manager and things like that to you know, have triggers based on latency information, for instance, to do auto-scaling or or things like that. We don't want to be too prescriptive in what those remediations are right now, because I think it requires some knowledge to make that work right. But over time, as we get more insight into what the applications are doing, all of those things become possible in the control plane. Okay, so maybe I have it wrong. But so on the proxy level, you've got all these sidecar proxies. You've got a sidecar proxy that runs with every application pod. And those proxies can say, hey, we're getting a lot of latency for this thing, or we're, we're having trouble responding quickly, we need to scale up. The, the proxy, the actual proxy instances can say the service needs to scale up. Is that accurate? Oh, well, the proxies were is kind of dumb. The proxy is really just saying, hey, here's latencies. And then the control plane is getting all this information and can look at it you know, as an aggregated cluster view of the thing and say, oh, look, you know, I've hit my SLO here, or my objective. And 
okay, my latency is out of the P99 latency. Maybe I have to go scale up more instances of this thing to satisfy that. But that can't be done in a totally application agnostic way, right? Adding more middle tier services doesn't reduce latency if your database is on fire. Right. Okay. So the control plane is really where the commands get issued back to the different the data plane, the different proxies. And it might say to a, one of the proxies, hey, we've detected this kind of issue and you need to scale up to more instances. Yeah, and the proxies themselves won't be doing any of the scaling, right? So the control plane may talk to the Kubernetes API to scale out a replica set, for instance. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so the control plane will be that thing that's talking to other control APIs like Kubernetes and reading telemetry data and then doing something with Kubernetes to enact a change. Cool, okay, so for somebody who has not actually operated Kubernetes like myself. I'm looking to get on that this Christmas break. That's one of my nice. <laughs> one of my tasks to do in the next week is actually spin up a Kubernetes cluster for the first time. It's a fun time. You'll you'll enjoy it. Is it? Okay, great. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I won't be an armchair architect anymore. <laughs> but uh, until then, so let's say I'm getting this information from my proxies to my control plane. The control plane says, okay, I want to scale up one of these replica sets, which is like the uh, abstraction of numerous replicas of a service, what happens during that communication between the control plane and the Kubernetes API? And what is the command that the control plane is issuing to the Kubernetes API? And how is the Kubernetes API broadcasting back to those that replica set, the set of service instances, to scale up? Just for people who are a little newer to Kubernetes, how does that process work? For sure. And so you might have something that sits in the control plane that's just reading telemetry and looking at, you know, different, for four conditions. And it, or maybe there's a Prometheus alert manager that's triggering some events based on some SLAs or something like that. And when these events are triggered, you can have a program that's, for instance, written Go. There's a, a nice uh, Kubernetes API client. And you can talk to the Kubernetes API and say, well, this uh, deployment, so let's say there's a user service. Every service is a user service. We can take a deployment and read it and say, oh, there's only five instances of this deployment. And now I'm failing my you know, uh, latency objective. Maybe I need to schedule more. And so what we can do is just push a new YAML object into the Kubernetes API. And it's literally HTTP put. It's a little easier if you use the Go client, though and update the object and you can increase the replica set to 10 or something, or it's even just a simple CLI. You can say kubectl scale 10 and then give the deployment name. And that'll tell the Kubernetes API that there need to be more instances of this particular deployment and find places in the cluster to start, start them. Got it. And so the future of the control plane is to have some more features around security and other, well, I guess, more... More control. <laughs> more control, yeah. yes, yeah. exactly. So what kinds of security policies would I want to implement at the control plane? Like, what does that actually mean? Uh, so there's a, a kind of variety of policies. And, and one that we kind of need to start with, there's various projects around this right now, like Spiffy is just having identity on both ends. And so if I get a request from another service, how do I know what service that actually came from? That could be a staging service, that could be production service, that could be a service pretending to be another service, right? And so just being able to establish identity between services cryptographically, like with TLS certs that says, okay, I actually can be assured that this service was run by this other user who's calling me. And so that's something I think we'll be doing in the short term is working with these other systems like Spiffy to just integrate with that basic level of identity in the system so that we know where requests are coming from. Well, that sounds really useful because this is actually a common occurrence where, oops, I accidentally integrated my staging server with production. Exactly, right? Like we have to have that base level of identity in the request streams in order to start to put in that policy of, hey, staging can't talk to this production database. But before we have identity, we can't really do that properly. Okay. Now that we've given some basic introductions for what the control plane does and what the data plane does. And by the way, for people who are still confused, we've at this point, we've done, I think, four or five shows about service meshes, and they should just go back and listen to those other episodes. So let's get back to the wonkiness. I'd love to know more about just designing a service mesh, because this is a new kind of application. You know, as you were sitting down to architect conduit, you've got this rapidly evolving Kubernetes ecosystem. You've got your experiences with Linkerd to draw on. You've got 
Istio, which is a very popular service mesh technology as well, and there's a lot of innovations happening there. When you're looking out across this landscape and you know evaluating the knowledge that you've gained over the last couple of years, what were some of the design considerations when you were building Conduit? The biggest one is keep it simple. Absolutely. You know, we started with Linkerd and we realized that a lot of our users get stuck in kind of the richness of the configuration. It can do so many things and it's so configurable, but it's kind of easy to lose sight of the, the things that you must do because you get kind of overwhelmed by all the things you could do. And so we see with people with very over-complex service meshes. And that's a big, a big concern for me, that the technology, the service mesh technology may not get adoption because it's seen as this complex, unnecessary set of solutions. So with Conduit, we really wanted to focus on the minimal set of things that's not overwhelming to get your head around and that it, like, it's useful immediately. And it's not something I have to totally get everyone on board to get that value out of, that I can do better debugging at least immediately without changing my application at all, without having to learn anything new. So that's kind of where we wanted to start with Conduit is really just lightweight you know, in terms of resources. It's very kind of, I think, under a meg in the demo I did at KubeCon. It was, it was really tiny proxy, but also lightweight conceptually. The language of choice for this lightweightness is Rust, in terms of the data plane, at least. Yeah. The sidecars in the data plane are in Rust. So, as I understand, this was also for memory safety issues. The Rust has safety as well as the high speed. Explain more about why Rust is the right choice for a sidecar. Yeah, so, you know, we've been, in, all many of us have been in production operations for a while and watching over the last few years Heartbleed and all of these issues creep up in core libraries that the whole internet depends on. It was a little scary for us, right? And we, as we started to think about our kind of place in the infrastructure we are, that we'd be linking against these unsafe libraries was kind of scary uh, in terms of offering support to banks and those sorts of things, which, of course, Buoyant would like to do eventually. And so we started to really seriously think about Rust and what that what advantages there would be there. And so we started looking at projects like uh, Russell's, Rust TLS is a re-implementation of TLS that doesn't link against OpenSSL or any of the C libraries. It reuses a bunch of the assembly code from those, which have been verified and validated externally. But uh, this actually gives us a much kind of better guarantee around at least you know free after use and all of the big traps that catch uh, OpenSSL and you know, every C library out there. And so our goal is to have a very minimal C dependency footprint and really try to leverage native safety in Rust for a lot of the security and correctness guarantees. So it's not just security, but I think it'll allow us to write more correct code if we can rely on the language features properly. So when you talk about memory safety, you're not talking about garbage collection. You're talking about heart, like Heartbleed. That was like buffer overrun yeah. error, right? Like there was some problem where if you requested things correctly over SS, how did that bug work again? You could send something to the server that would make it read from improperly freed memory that wasn't cleared. And you could start to read out session keys and things out of arbitrary memory. And that's just because the, you know, the C compilers don't enforce anything around your access to buffers. And so Rust has a lot of, it has no GC. It's not a garbage collected language. It's all done at compile time. And so all of the you know, reference counting and all of these things are just managed by the compiler for you. It makes comp compilation a little slower, which is hopefully gets improved over time. But we get a lot more out of that compilation than we do on the Go side. And the controller is written in Go, so that we want a lot more people to contribute to the controller than the data plane, which should hopefully be boring code that doesn't change all that often once we get all the features we need into it. And so were there some issues in the Linkerd sidecar that relate to this, this safety issue? Well, so Linkerd is super pluggable, all right? Like I said before, you can write these plugins for any service discovery backend, all sorts of different policy uh, plugins, et cetera. But that means that people are writing their own code and putting it in the data plane. And more generally, that the data plane does a lot, that Linkerd is, can do a lot of work there. And so while we, did, we didn't have any big security incident that triggered this, it did make us, from a support point of view, think that it was a lot harder for us to guarantee correct behavior at all in the data plane if 
other people are adding code in the data plane directly. And so what we wanted to do with Conduit is have a very configurable, pluggable control plane that works via an API with the proxy, but the proxy is you know, basically bolted down and doesn't have a lot of functionality built into it that isn't explicitly expressed via the API. Did you have to make any opinionated decisions? where Because if, if you're saying that there were people that wanted to plug and play and do all kinds of crazy stuff with their Linkerd sidecar proxy, then probably if you wanted to tamp that down building Conduit, you had to make some constraints. Oh, yeah. I mean, Conduit, well, Linkerd is, you can build many different kinds of service meshes with, with Linkerd. And people, that's why they all look so different. Conduit will be a much more opinionated limited system. And so we've started with a very constrained set of features, not because we don't know how those features should work, but because we just want to start with the essentials and not overwhelm people, or add a lot of complexity in the system early on. Um, and so we'll be layering these new features, but it'll be, I think, in a much more opinionated, targeted, constrained way. And you said the communication between the data plane service proxies and the control plane, the service mesh, that's over gRPC? Yeah, that's over gRPC, and all of the interfaces within the control plane are also gRPC. And so we kind of have a small microservice in the control plane. Explain what gRPC is. And so gRPC is a technology built by Google and some other folks that kind of is the newest version of an older technology of Thrift or Protobuf. And so what those are are ways to describe APIs via a small uh, domain-specific language at DSL. And so I can just say the user service has a get user func method and a delete user method, and a user struct has a age field and a you know hair color field or, or whatever it is. And it's just a way to kind of uniformly describe structures and, and service interfaces uh, independently of a language implementation. And then we can use the proto protoc tool to generate gRPC bindings in any number of languages. So PHP or Node or, or Rust now, we wrote a Rust gRPC generator. And I've written a Scala one in the past. And so it's a way for us to generate services programmatically. And then they all communicate over HTTP2. And so uh, Conduit right now actually only supports HTTP2. We'll be adding HTTP1 support in the near future. But yeah, we've been really kind of focused on that forward-looking set of primitives and technologies there. Mm -hmm. So just for some historical context, so I think you know, if you want many of your services throughout the internet probably communicate with HTTP requests, get put um, restful requests, but they're sending JSON as the content or they're sending XML as the content, you could just as easily send gRPC or protobufs as the content. Is that correct? Yeah, well, and gRPC can even generate JSON body, just a way for building the clients and server code that generate that. And so when I write a gRPC server, I don't even know whether it's, G it's JSON or protobuf on the wire. The library can choose that for me. I just know that oh. I returned an object of this shape, and it's somehow going to get serialized on the wire for the client. Oh, did gRPC, it, it was not a new serialization protocol, too? No, and so it's, gRPC itself can use Thrift or JSON or, or Protobuf. Protobuf by default, but it can actually have other serialization formats as well. Okay, interesting. You know, I did a show pretty recently about Protobufs and this other serialization protocol that this guy Kenton made called Cap'n Proto. Have you heard of that one? Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, what, why hasn't the world updated to that one? It sounded like it was a little more speedy. Because it's not all about speed. You know, these things exist in organizations where they have a lot of existing protobuf or a lot right. of existing thrift. You know, Twitter, I think, will never move away from thrift just because they've got so much investment there. And I'm sure Google will never move away from protobuf for similar reasons. And so the, once these technologies get entrenched in organizations, it's just hard to rip them out. Mm. Yeah, and you got I guess you got to be 1,000x better or 10x better or something to really get people to, to do that kind of thing. Yeah, the CPU cost is not the only cost. Right? <laughs> yes. Okay, and let's shed a little more light on this communication. Like, when am I writing a gRPC 
plugin or or service and what does that look like? Yeah, so let me kind of walk through maybe the life of a request a little bit. When your service tries to send a request, it'll just say, okay, I want to call the user service and send this request there. And when that goes out, when you've injected the sidecar into your application, we add a, a IP tables rewrite rule that sends all that traffic through the proxy. And so you don't have to change your application to send traffic through the proxy. It all happens automatically. Hmm. When the proxy gets a request, it's going to look at the headers, right? It's going to look at the host header and say, where is this request going? If it knows, if it's looked up a request like this before, it'll just forward it along over that load balancer to that endpoint. Otherwise, it'll send a gRPC request to the controller and say, hey, I need a lookup for the user service. Give me back the set of IP addresses that make up the user service. Actually, IP and port addresses, right? And so then that's over a gRPC request, and the server responds with a, just a stream of updates, watching the Kubernetes API, basically, for service discovery changes. Then once, once the proxy gets all of those addresses, it, start, it builds connections up and starts to send the dispatch the requests to whichever endpoints are available that it can send them to. And so each request it gets, it may send to a different endpoint in that cluster according to whatever load balancing logic applies. Uh, then as these requests go through the proxy, the proxy is also counting them and measuring the latencies and uh, looking at the status codes and things like that and building up a collection of data over some time window. And so by default, every 10 seconds, we flush out a bunch of data to the control plane of recent telemetry. And so, yeah, we keep buffering up data and then just flush it out to the control plane, which ends up in Prometheus and is queryable in the UI or via the CLI. So if, I, if I'm an operator or I guess a developer who know, even knows what the difference is anymore, what's my interaction with the service mesh technology on a day-to-day -day basis? Or when am I writing uh, these plugins or this code for a service mesh? Yeah, so the plugins are going to become when you have an automation. So like I said, we have Prometheus in there by default. We have a telemetry API. So you don't actually have to write a plugin into the mesh to start to read data out of it or, or things like that. But let's say you wanted to plug in a different, maybe you want to send some of this data to Datadog or to your other in-house telemetry backend. Well, you then might write a plugin that's going to filter through the data according to what you actually want and send out some report to another service. Or let's say that you want to have slightly different service discovery logic and that the way that you look up services isn't the default way that Kubernetes looks up services. For instance, because you have one of these hybrid environments because you're migrating to Kubernetes still. Well, then you might write a destination plugin. We call the destination services the service discovery service. You might write a destination plugin that applies your service discovery logic before falling back to our default service discovery logic. And so it's going to be for kind of overriding behavior. Uh, later, this will also come into policy when we start to say, you know, rate limiting policy or can this service talk to that service? We'll be integrating with things like OPA, the open policy agent, as, you know, APIs that you can plug into the controller and probably also the XDS APIs. And so these are a set of APIs that Istio uses with Envoy. I expect you'll be able to plug in those APIs as well into the control plane over time. Okay, yeah, that was my next question was, you look at back two and a half years and you see how Kubernetes and Mesos and Swarm and the difference between them led to a slower pace of innovation than we have today. Like today, you know, at KubeCon, it was just insane about, you could tell how fast the everything was moving. And it was basically because People were saying, okay, we're using Kubernetes. Everybody's using Kubernetes. Get on the boat or get off of it. And because of that, people can make certain assumptions. You know, open source projects can make assumptions and enterprises can make assumptions. And we're all rowing in the same direction and it's great. And it makes me wonder, is the service mesh another winner-take-most market or is it, you know, could you have some kind of standardization like we're seeing with the open container initiative, kind of a container definition that is more broad. I think we're also seeing this with serverless. I think the serverless people were meeting and having their, I don't know, some back office discussions at KubeCon, like, how are we going to standardize serverless? So yeah, I mean, if you can standardize it, then it doesn't, it almost doesn't matter if you're running Istio or you're running Linkerd or you're running uh, Conduit, you know, because you've got a standardized plugin interface. Yeah, and I think aspects of those things will standardize, like service discovery, natural thing for an API to become 
you know, boring. And But I don't expect all of service mesh to become boring. I think there'll be parts of it that become boring and parts of it where it's really worth differentiating in terms of features or opinions. And we'll have to see what the boring parts end up being versus the really interesting features where it's where it's going to be helpful for there to be multiple ideas around how X, Y, or Z should work. And so it's not an all or nothing thing in my mind. It's, it's definitely pieces of it. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Because, you know, you look out at, for the last probably 10 or 20 years, in an expo hall at a conference, and you could go, and there's five or six or 20 different logging and monitoring providers, and all of them are have great businesses. All of them have popular platforms. It was not a winner-take-all in logging and monitoring. You could see Service Mesh be the same thing. Yeah, and, you know, all of those logging things have similar features, uh, have standard features and they differentiate in other ways and i think service mesh will be the same way buoyant obviously our our mission here is to provide that immediate value and work with the the people we've been working with for the last two years to solve real problems today but as we see the industry really adopts certain things like kubernetes right we've standardized around that we're going to build into a bunch of their apis as our user bases are really clamoring for certain features and certain standards there's no reason buoyant won't adopt those. So I know we're almost uh, out of time, but I, you know, I had a conversation with Brendan Burns recently on the show and it kind of blew my mind. He said something that really blew my mind where he was talking about where Kubernetes is going and what the implications are. And the, the thing that he re- that really stood out to me was he was talking about how you could have a new software purchasing model where you buy basically a binary and you just run it on any Kubernetes cluster. Like it, it, This could have business implications where you could now buy a Zendesk binary and you could have Zendesk on your Kubernetes and there you go, you've got Zendesk and you no longer need to pay Zendesk. You just pay your cloud service provider for server runtime, which is going to be much cheaper than paying the uh, SaaS abstraction that is just hosting that for you. And I was like, well, that's kind of cool. Like maybe that'll happen, maybe it won't, but it's at least a cool idea. And the service mesh seems like another layer where this is something that's kind of new. And there seems like there's probably some crazy business opportunities that can be built in the upmarket, like five to 10 years or maybe three years or two years. Who do I, I don't don't know. What happens? What's the upmarket effect of the service mesh? Yeah, so we're not working on service mesh because we want to have support contracts for service mesh users. Uh, <laughs> we're working on service mesh because we think it unlocks, like you say, a lot of uh, business potential. And I think the microservices can have the opportunity to really change the way that teams and organizations work, uh, engineering teams and organizations. It gives people more autonomy and individual responsibility. And, and it, I don't know, it was a really personally changing experience to see that at Twitter and all of the opportunities for individual leadership that kind of come out of that sort of organization operationally. And so I think that that's where I see companies like Buoyant and other companies in the industry really playing is how do they change businesses to be better using these technologies? The technologies are are kind of, these are things that have to work, have to be open source, have to be available, and making them work right is not an interesting business. But using these things to make businesses work better is... Very exciting in my mind. Okay. Well, it's a bright future. Oliver, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking to you. And give my best to William. I always love talking to him. He's a hilarious guy. And Thanks for letting me nerd out about this stuff. It's it's really fun for me. So hopefully the audience enjoys it. Oh, of course. I'm sure we'll be doing it again in the future. All right. Great, Jeff. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thanks, Oliver. Wow. 